Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning, we will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. Kalia gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Today, Kalia, that's me, I am joined with Leah. Hi, Leah. Hi. We will be discussing Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park was the 1990 science fiction novel written by Michael Crichton. And it was made into a movie in 1993 directed by Steven Spielberg. We will talk more about that in just a second, but first I want to make sure you know how to get in touch with us. You can find our website at kmmamedia.com or you can email me at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, I am on Facebook, occasionally on Twitter. So reach out in all the ways. And if you would like to be a patron and get access to our awesome supplemental episodes, you can find out more information at patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. And now on with the show. Okay, cool. So hi, Leah. Hi. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name's Leah. I know Kalia from way back in our college days. <laughs> we won't tell you exactly how long ago that was, but right. a little ways past. Leah was an English major, just like me. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Boop, boop. Okay. And we almost started talking about this, but then I said, no, no, wait. Had you read this book or seen this movie when it came out? Like me, I think you would have been 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. I, so I had to call my mom to verify the timeline on this actually today. I called her. I was like, mom, did we read the book or watch the movie first? I can't remember. And she was like, no, we absolutely read the book first. And that had been my recollection as well, but I was 12. So you kind of want some verification on your memories from when you were 12. So yes, I was 12 when I read the book and then we watched it for my 13th birthday. I'm one of those lucky people that has a June birthday. So usually like uh, all those teen years we went to whatever the big summer blockbuster was and it happened to be Jurassic Park that year and my brother was eight and looking at this movie now I'm amazed that my parents let him <laughs> watch this movie but we must have seen it in the theaters four times when it came out wow. it was big yeah and we'd already read the book and I remember you know, a few things about the changes that they made and thinking, I, I think the biggest one was, man, why did they do that to Gennaro's character? Okay. That was so I, unfair. <laughs> I have so much to say about that, but yes. Okay. Before we get there, I did not see the movie in the theater at age oh. 12 because um, it looked scary. <laughs> right? 
And we didn't see a lot of movies when I was a kid. And I did not read this book as a child because my dad is interested in different sci-fi. Uh, so sure. it just wasn't like on the thing. And if, basically, unless my dad had it, I wasn't reading. Like I was reading his analogs and his Asimov and his Star Trek novels, mm-hmm. you know, but I, yeah. And I was 12. I was distracted with other stuff. But anyways, so years and years later, I remember I, I like vaguely knew about it, but it wasn't until my ex-husband actually at one point sat me down and was like these movies are canon and you must see them and say what you will about my ex-husband but he he was was wrong about some of those canon movies I will never forgive the amount of time I spent watching Spaceballs but he was right about Jurassic Park so I watched Jurassic Park there's one more thing I guess one more little part of my story in high school probably sophomore or junior year, we had a substitute in my earth science class who played like the first 20 minutes, not the first scene, but like the first, the other part where they're like actually at a dig and then Yes. Okay. Like in, in a class, like it was the substitute, but it was a tiny, tiny screen way in the corner. And I could not see crap. So I kind of heard 20 minutes version. So I'm not even going to count that whatever. Anyways, I saw it in my twenties at some point and I was like, wow, that was really cool. That was the end of it. And then I'd never read the book. And then it was on our list. And you, I've read other Michael Crichton books since then. And you and I Mm -hmm. have talked about Michael Crichton's writing style. Mm -hmm. So you were a natural fit when I was like, you know, it'd be fun. Anyways. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to read my recaps of the book and then of the movie, and then we will get into it. And I I only have 16 pages of notes this time. So. Oh, just Just a a few. few, you know, my font is big. It's fine. So, like I said, Jurassic Park is the 1990 science fiction novel written by Michael Crichton, and this is my recap. In 1989, a series of strange animal attacks occur in Costa Rica, including a worker severely injured on a mysterious construction project on the nearby island of Isla Nublar. One of the species behind the attacks is identified as a... I guess I have a child who knows everything about dinosaurs, and I cannot pronounce any things. Okay, it is proconsonophthus, but we're going to just call it comfy because that's what everybody calls it. So the little comfies, okay, or has attacked. Paleontologist Alan Grant and his paleobotanist graduate student Ellie Sattler are contacted to confirm the identification, but are abruptly whisked away by billionaire John Hammond, founder and chief executive officer of the International Genetic Technologies, for a weekend visit to a biological preserve that he has established on Isla Nublar. The preserve is revealed to be Jurassic Park, a theme park showcasing cloned dinosaurs. The animals have all been recreated using damaged dinosaur DNA, which has been found in blood inside of gnats, ticks, and mosquitoes that were fossilized and preserved in amber. Gaps in the genetic code has been filled in with compatible reptilian, avian, or amphibian DNA. To control the population, all specimens on the island are lysine deficient and an X-ray sterilized as females. Recent incidents in the park have spooked Hammond's investors. To placate them, Hammond uses Grant and Statler as fresh consultants. They stand in counterbalance of a famous mathematician and chaos theorist Ian Malcolm and a lawyer representing the investors, who is Donald Gennaro. Donald Gennaro and Ian Malcolm, they are pessimistic about the park's prospects. Malcolm, having been consulted before the park's creation, is especially emphatic in his prediction that the park will collapse as it is an unstainable, simple structure bluntly forced upon a complex system with too many unpredictable variables. 
Hammond also brings along his grandchildren, Tim and Lex, who join the tour group. The park staff include engineer John Arnold, the biotechnologist Henry Wu, the game warden Robert Muldoon, public relations manager Ed Riggs, and the vet Gary Harding. While touring the park, Grant finds a velociraptor eggshell seemingly to prove Malcolm's earlier assertions the dinosaurs have indeed somehow found a way to breed against the geneticist's design. Meanwhile, the disgruntled chief programmer of Jurassic Park's controlling software, Nedry, attempts corporate espionage. He's going to help this other company, Biosim, and steal embryos. So he's written a backdoor into the code for the park's computer system. Nedry shuts down its security system and steals frozen embryos for each of the park's 15 species as an attempt to smuggle them out. However, during his escape, he loses his bearings due to a sudden tropical storm and is killed by a Dilophosaurus. Without Nedry to reactivate the park's security, the electrified fences remain off and all the dinosaurs escape. The park's adult Tyrannosaurus attacks the guests on tour while a juvenile T-Rex kills Ed Riggs because Ed abandons the children. In the aftermath, Grant and the children become lost in the park. Malcolm is gravely injured during the incident. He's found by Gennaro and Muldoon and spends the remainder of the novel slowly dying. But between his death throes, he has lucid lectures and morphine-induced rants. He tries to help the others understand their predicaments. He tries to help them survive. The park staff manage to temporarily get the park largely back in order, restoring the computer systems by shutting down and then restarting the power. When trying to restore the park to working order, they fail to notice that the system has now running on auxiliary power since the restart. This power soon runs out, shutting the park down for a second time. The park's intelligent and aggressive raptors have escaped their enclosure. They killed Arnold. They kill Wu. Meanwhile, Grant and the children slowly make their way back to the visitor center by rafting down a jungle river, carrying news that several young raptors were on board the island supply ship when it departed for the mainland. After the three return to the visitor center, they are contacted by the others who instruct Grant to switch on the park's generators. Tim is then able to reactivate the park's main power because he knows computers, allowing Gennaro to force the supply ship to return. Grant, Sattler, Muldoon, and Gennaro find the wild raptor nests and compare hatched eggs with the island's revised population tally, realizing the animals have indeed been breeding and are leaving the island in an attempt to migrate. Meanwhile, Hammond is taking a walk and contemplating building a new park, improving on his previous mistakes. He hears a T-Rex roar and, startled, falls down a hill where he is eaten by a pack of confies. Hooray! Grant deduces that using frog DNA to fill in the gaps of the dinosaur genetic code has been what has enabled a form of a fun scientific thing which makes some of the female animals change into males in response to the same sex environment. The computer tally failed to include newborn animals having been programmed to stop counting once the assumed correct total number of animals has been found, aka computer glitch. The survivors are then rescued by the Costa Rican Air Force. They declare the island hazardous and unsafe. They proceed to raise the island with napalm. Survivors of the incident are now indefinitely detained by the United States and Costa Rican governments at a hotel. Weeks later, Grant is visited by Dr. Gutierrez, an American doctor who lives in Costa Rica. Gutierrez informs Grant that an unknown pack of animals has been seen migrating through the Costa Rican jungles, eating lysine-rich crops and chickens, indicating... The dinosaurs may still exist in the wild. The end. Obviously condensed. Here's my movie recap, which is a little less Wikipedia and a little bit more snark for me. <clears throat> Opening scene. We see serious men doing serious work of moving something sinister in a cage that ends up attacking and killing one of the men. The tone is set. There is something dangerous going on. 
what is going on, you might ask? Well, we have lawyer Gennaro trying to track down Hammond, a gazillionaire who's building some sort of theme park that has been plagued with misfortune, including, you know, the guy who just died. Gennaro exposits that there will be a team of people to go look at the park and sign off on it or shut it down. The mention is comes of Alan Grant. He's a digger. Shift to Alan Grant, the digger, a digger indeed, a paleontologist doing a dig out in the Badlands with his girlfriend and fellow paleobotanist Ellie Statler. We have a bit of character introduction where we learn that Alan doesn't like or trust computers. He dislikes kids and, and he is of the not overly accepted theory that dinosaurs are closely related to birds, not just lizards, as was the prevailing thought. This is all interrupted when a helicopter lands disrupting the dig site. Hammond has arrived and foreshadowing. He doesn't really care that he might have messed anything up with his helicopter. He's big into throwing his money around and his money will fix any sort of problem. The current problem, he wants Ellie and Alan to come to his park and sign off on it. And he bribes them via promising to fund their research. Meanwhile, a nerdy computer guy is taking a bribe from another biotech company to steal from Hammond. This is Nedry. He will also be on site for the big tour, but will be in the computer room with fellow computer guy Arnold. And yes, it's Newman. And yes, he's being cliche bad guy. Anyway, the group sets off. Gennaro, Ellie, Alan, Hammond, and Ian Malcolm, a mathematician who's both kind of sleazy and also kind of awesome. And it's totally like, this is all a really bad idea and it totally won't work. And also, hey, chaos theory, blah, 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 blah. Flirt, 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 chaos theory, flirt. Upon arrival, the group is shocked to see a live Brachiosaurus. Oh my God. It's actually kind of amazing. At the park's visitor center, the group settles in to watch a video slash go on the ride that explains everything, but they cannot be constrained in their seats. They waltz into the labs where they learn that the cloning was accomplished by extracting dinosaur DNA from mosquitoes preserved in amber. DNA from frogs has been used to fill in the gaps in the genome of the dinosaurs. To prevent breeding, all the dinosaurs are made female. So says Dr. Wu. Malcolm scoffs at this idea, saying that it will inevitably break down. Life, you know, will find a way. Exit Dr. Wu. The group witnesses the hatching of a baby velociraptor and visits the raptor enclosure. They meet Muldoon, the warden of the park, who is pretty much like, all the raptors should be killed. Making them was a bad idea. They're super vicious. They're super smart. No one's going to listen. The group watches as a bull is fed to the raptor cage. Alan seems pretty much on Muldoon's side, and Malcolm is singing his song of this is all going to end badly, really, really loud. During lunch, the group debates the ethics of cloning and the creation of the park, and Malcolm warns again about the implications of genetic engineering. He also rails a bit about science in general. Alan and Ellie are also kind of horrified by the prospect of what's going on here, and Ellie points out that the park has ferns from long ago that are, you know, like poisonous right here in this visitor center, but nobody really cares. Gennaro is the only one who's on board with Hammond. He has dollar signs in his eyes. The group is now joined by Hammond's grandchildren, Lex and Tim, for a tour of the park, while Hammond oversees the tour from the control room. The tour does not go as planned. First off, they are 0 for 2 in seeing the dinos along the way, including not seeing a T-Rex, even when the T-Rex is giving a nice big juicy goat to snack on. What they do see, when they get out of their cars and venture off the paved road, is a sick triceratops. Ellie is sure the sick dino is eating something bad for it, and we get a great scene where she literally digs through a giant pile of shit. A tropical storm approaches. Most of the park employees leave for the mainland on a boat while the visitors return on their electric tour vehicles, except for Ellie, who stays behind with the park's vet to study the Triceratops. In the computer room, Nedry deactivates the park's security system and then acts super shady guilty, but off he goes to steal embryos. Nedry's sabotage also cuts powers on the tour vehicles. They are stranded. Most of the park's electric fences are deactivated as well. 
The next bit is back and forth, but I'll just finish Nedry off here. He drives out in the rain to get to the boat to give his stolen embryos, but he gets lost. He encounters a dino in the wild. Remember, the fences are all deactivated, and he's patronizing and mean to the dinosaur who promptly spits poison on his face. He runs back to his car, but another dinosaur is helpfully waiting for him inside, and, well, he's eaten. Back to the kids and the tour. The T-Rex attacks the two vehicles. It's super intense. Gennaro runs away in fear. The kids are super scared. Grant and Malcolm try to rescue the kids, and this ends up with Malcolm getting super injured and Gennaro getting eaten and Grant and Timmy in a tree. There's also some heroics, some rescuing. Now we have Alan, Mr. I Don't Like Kids, lost in the park with two kids. Sattler helps Meldoon search for survivors, but they only find Malcolm just before the Tyrannosaurus Rex shows back up. The T-Rex chases them in their Jeep, but they outrun it somehow, and they make it back to safety. Ellie and Hammond have a conversation over ice cream that I will want to talk more about later. Grant, Tim, and Lex take shelter in a tree. There's a nice few moments of dino jokes and then feeding the vegisauruses in the morning. Also, they discover the broken shells of dinosaur eggs. Grant concludes that the dinosaurs have been breeding, which occurred because of their frog DNA. Some West African frogs can change their sex in a single sex environment, allowing the dinosaurs to do so as well. We never thought of that or knew about that or something. Oh, well, he's not here to ask. The three continue on their hike back to the visitor center and almost get stampeded by a roving gang of more vegisauruses. Unable to decipher Nedry's code or reactivate the security system, Hammond and Arnold reboot the park system. This turns everything off and will hopefully set everything to rights when it is all turned back on again. They do this and then retreat to the emergency bunker while Arnold heads out for a maintenance shed in order to complete the rebooting process. When Arnold fails to return, Statler and Muldoon head to the shed. They discover the shutdown has deactivated the remaining fences and released the velociraptors. Muldoon distracts the raptors. Statler goes back inside to turn the power back on. Our intrepid trio has come to a fence that normally would be all coursing with energy and kill you if you touch it. But hey, the power's off, so they climb. Sattler gets a bit lost in the shed, but Malcolm rouses himself from his drug-induced stupor and his sexy lounge to help her. Hammond is not overly helpful. She starts turning all the fences back on one by one by one. And oh my God, if she turns the fence on while the kids are on it, they'll all die. Or maybe Tim will just get shocked and go flying and, you know, survive. Either way, fences are back on, the trio is closed to the air quote safety, and I guess, oh, yes, this raptor has just been waiting for that perfect moment to attack Ellie because as soon as she's done, out it comes and chases her. While running, she finds part of Arnold, farewell Arnold, and then escapes. Outside, Muldoon is hunting the raptor and being hunted, and oh yes, he was right. They are indeed clever. They flank him and eat him. Farewell, Muldoon. Grant, Tim, and Lex reach the visitor center. Grant heads out to look for a settler, leaving Tim and Lex inside to dig into a bunch of desserts that are just kind of randomly there. But oh my God, safety is an illusion. Tim and Lex are pursued by the raptors into a kitchen, but they escape thanks to Lex's own bit of cleverness using a reflective surface and trapping one of them inside a freezer walk-in. They join Grant and Sattler, still pursued by a very angry raptor, and all run to the control room. But the doors won't lock, so they're still in peril. But hey, Lex is the hacker. Yay! So she's able to get the phone lines working and the doors lock. Grant radios Hammond to come pick them up and to call for extraction. Yes, he has the kids, but the raptor is now breaking through the windows. They climb around the vents for a bit, but end up back in the main hall of the visitor center and they are surrounded by raptors. But wham, here comes a T-Rex to eat the raptors. And this allows them to escape into Hammond's waiting Jeep. Malcolm's also in the back of the Jeep. The group of survivors then, Hammond, Tim, Lex, Alan, Ellie, and Malcolm board a helicopter. They leave the island. Hammond is sad to see his dream die. The kids cuddle with Alan. Laura Dern still has the same look on her face she's worn the entire movie, and the credits roll. Yeah, that that seems fair. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to 
say my mother hated Laura Dern's character with a passion <laughs> in this movie. Like that's one of the things I remember from the original watch through is how much she hated it. The other thing I remember in stark relief is the scene where the goat leg falls on the car because and I remember it because my mom screamed so loud and grabbed my hand in this vice grip and it completely pulled me out of the moment instead of being like in terror over this dinosaur you know attacking them I was like ow (laughs) oh yeah those are two very memorable moments (laughs) but my mom just just ragging on Laura Dern the entire the entire I movie mean, <laughs> every time she opened her mouth my mom would like twitch or tiss. It, it's so uh, oh. okay here's the thing I want to like empower women and not shit all over this woman character because like she's the only woman here right. Okay. And she has a couple of good moments in both the books. She has a couple of good moments in the movie, but Laura Dern literally has one look on her face the entire time. And it is very frustrating. And it, it makes her into a ditz. And then there's like this, the scene where she's talking with uh, Hammond while they're having ice cream at one point. And her acting is so bad. Like my note for that scene is like, Mm -hmm. this is acting. It's uh, funny because when I was talking to my family about the movie, that scene was one of the few that my mom pulled out, like directly. She's like, I remember this scene and just thinking that something was missing out of this scene. Like the editing was bad or they cut some stuff because it was just a weird it was a weird scene and it was sort of like Laura, like that character just getting up on her high horse and lecturing Hammond. And so going back just slightly to the change to to a couple of the characters. So I think in the effort to streamline the movie and not have too many characters, they cut out the character of Ed Regis, who was the um, PR director for Mm -hmm. the park. And they kind of gave his bad traits to Gennaro Mm -hmm. and his good traits to Ellie. So all these scenes that, that Gennaro was sort of central to, including that conversation with Hammond, um, ended up going over to Ellie. And that conversation in the book was really more about Hammond's denial of the situation and refusal to see things and in the movie it was sort of his come to Jesus moment where Ellie was just calling him on the fact that he was wrong and he kind of wakes up about it yeah in where he never woke up about it in the book he just just you know doubled down on all of his bad behavior obviously Gennaro's the the treatment of him just awful but I thought it was a very interesting change to make Hammond. He's a psychopath in the yeah. book. Like he is there for the money. He is like a megalomaniac. And even how he's described as being short and swinging his feet when he sits in chairs and yes. like eating his ice cream like a little child. He is like a petulant, narcissistic, sociopathic child. And I think I wrote down <laughs> that exact line. <laughs> to describe him petulant and narcissistic yes. and a child yes were exactly <laughs> words that I used 
to describe Hammond. And he just, but, but the thing is with the book, and I see this consistently with all the deaths in the book, is that Crichton seemed to have, one of his themes was that you kind of get what you deserve. And I think that's um, in, in some way to feed the audience, right? Because we want that satisfaction of the, you know, the, the characters that were dumb need to have, you know, justice or comeuppance. We want them to be spanked. We do. Yes. <laughs> we do. But with Hammond in particular, his death is interesting to me because he spends the entire book deluded about the park. Wu calls him on the park. Muldoon calls him on the park. Malcolm calls him on the park. Grant calls him. Like, Gennaro. Uh, Gennaro. Everyone. Every single person points out every flaw in this park I think Nedry even might you know originally gave, you know it's like it's not my fault you didn't give me the yeah, correct you're too secretive and weird about it yeah right you're way too secretive so he was in denial this whole time and then the manner of his death to the little compies so the compies deliver this sort of venom that makes the the person kind of not care that they're getting eaten right it's almost like like taking an opiate and and just like fading out so the way he dies is in delusion of being <laughs> eaten <laughs> right he's beat like like he just i'm not being eaten this is fine it's all fine <laughs> right so it's like the most poetic death that he could possibly give to Hammond like he died originally like the entire reason he was in that situation was because the T-Rex sound wasn't even real it was the kids playing on the speakers and he panicked ran and fell down the hill he broke his leg and so then it's like he had a, like a couple moments of panic <laughs> thankfully he didn't like instantly yes. go into this happy place because that would have not been satisfying right mm -hmm. he had moments to panic and then they're like chomp chomp Chomp, chomp. Chomp, chomp. and then like backing up and then chomp, 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 chomp. and then they eat him yep. and he fades away and it is incredibly poetic I mean I loved that part that is like one of my favorite scenes in this book it, it right was him getting eaten but they had to change that so much in the movie and I remember being disappointed about that because you kind of love to hate the character. Mm -hmm. He represented all of those corporate types that are just in it for their bottom line. And Crichton lays it on thick in the book, right? There's a whole scene between him and Wu where, where Hammond is basically saying, I would never do like medical research to help people because then you wouldn't get paid. And that's all like all he really cares about. Whereas in the movie, he's portrayed as like, I want to bring joy to the children. Yeah. So he's like a little deluded, but he's like, his heart is in the right spot. And then he does learn his lesson. Like he does, you know, he even has that moment when Alan says, I'm not going to, you know, support your park. And he's like, oh yeah, me too. Like I'm with you. Like it's fine. And mm -hmm. he's sad about it, but he accepts it. And we totally yes. don't get that in the book at all at all okay so a lot of characters got changed but what I thought was interesting is like the villains okay so who's the villain mm -hmm. here so Hammond is a villain in the book and not a villain in the movie Gennaro mm -hmm. is not a villain in the book and is totally like a blood suck like not villain but we don't like him we're not rooting for him in the movie Nedry is a villain in the book and a villain in the movie and that was mm -hmm. fine and then the dinosaurs themselves and the technology you know and yada yada but I just I just thought it was 
like that whole that that change to yeah. move things around. And yeah, we might as well just say it. Gennaro, okay, he is so sympathetic in the book. He's got a wife and kid. Yes. Like he's there to protect his investors, like because he's good at his job, but he's got his misgivings. Mm-hmm. He shows up, he does see dollar signs. Who wouldn't, right? If that's your you know, mm-hmm. I, I get it. And then he's like, oh, wait a minute. He is brave. He doesn't abandon he the is. kids. He actually goes out twice with Muldoon with like with weapons. Yep. And this is this is not a guy at the at the range. This is not a guy who knows his way around weapons, but he's there. Mm-hmm. And then they all treat him like shit. They're all yelling at him all the time. Everybody treats him badly. They force yep. him to go back out to help with this raptor counting yep. at the end, which was just stupid. Why? Why are we counting raptors? Right. Raise the right. freaking island to the ground. But no, no, no. Like Grant wants to go out and look. And so then it becomes like this moral thing that Gennaro has to go with them for some reason. Right. And like Muldoon threatens him with the gun. If he doesn't he... go down into this hole, but Muldoon doesn't right. go down Which, in the hole. Which, by the way, he barely fit through. Seriously. <laughs> also, Muldoon doesn't go down in the hole. Like, what the hell, man? Right. Okay, you have to see what you've done. Dude, he has seen it. He's on your well, side. Well, I think Muldoon was injured, which is why he couldn't go, but they already have Grant and, and Sattler down there. Why does Gennaro need to go also? They're not like flamethrowing, torching the egg nests or anything. Which is what They're they should just... have been doing. They're just observing yeah, them. Yeah, seriously. And I, and I, when I was reading that, I thought, you know, I think this is the difference between a character that is not a field person, right? Because you have you have Sattler and Grant and Muldoon, who are all like this is their life. They understand big game. They understand dinosaurs. They know what they're doing. They have, you know, all of them throughout the entire book have this weird sort of almost um, blasé attitude towards going into danger with the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And Gennaro feels like the only character that behaves like a normal human Mm -hmm. besides the kids, right? He's the one that, that you as a reader can sympathize with his behavior because Ellie, she got into this sort of euphoric almost you know adrenaline state when the raptors were tracing her where it was like she wasn't even afraid she was just running and it was almost like exciting for her and like an adrenaline junkie response and but but Muldoon repeatedly goes out into the park in situations that are absolutely terrifying you know (laughs) and and he's smart about it he refuses to go out at night to look for the kids actually in the paddocks but he still is is making decisions that the rest of us are like um that's not that's not what i would do right that's crazy but yes they are mean to gennaro about it grant like like got in his face and shoved him up against the wall and lectured him on it and i'm like he's a lawyer (laughs) seriously like why why are you not doing that to hammond hammond deserves your ire gennaro does not deserve your ire like this it was he's doing everything right it was very frustrating to me so i i hated that that change is probably my biggest frustrational change in terms yeah. of character yeah then they okay so then we have grant right who uh one of the things i read called him indiana bones <laughs> I, I, that made 
Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and he's like, we'll talk more about Crichton's writing, but you know, he's pretty flat. He's a nice, nice enough guy. He likes kids. He likes dinosaurs. He's going to do what needs to be done. Dopey, dopey, dope. Like he's a little derpy in my opinion, but fine. <laughs> in the movie, we have to give him character development. So we make him that he doesn't like kids at the beginning. And then he likes kids towards the end, which is stupid. I think in terms of how to show a character has changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's dumb. Also, it happens super mm-hmm. fast. Like he doesn't like kids. And then five minutes later, he's like, protect the children, which is a human thing, not a person who likes kids right. thing. And then it's like, right. now we're going to bond. Tell me a knock knock joke. Let's all cuddle. And I'm like, no, no. Like, I just, I don't know. And then to have Ellie freaking like yeah. with her little smirky smiles at him the whole time, like, oh, these right. little kids, they like you. Oh, I'm going to smile at you because you like them too. And it's like, what the what 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 no stupid i i can honestly say that as someone that does like kids if i had to go through that situation with those two children (laughs) i might change my mind about liking them (laughs) on the other end of it and i will say as someone who doesn't like most children but loves my own dude kids in the book are freaking annoying like they are so annoying. we have tim who's the older in the book, and then they switch it in the movie, Lex is older. Okay, so we have Tim in the book. He's older, little Mr. Know-it-all. He knows everything about dinosaurs. He knows everything about computers. He knows everything about climbing trees and how to escape from a car and da-da-da. Like, Mm -hmm. he he felt to me like Michael Crichton's stand-in character, okay? Yeah. And interesting tidbit, originally this book was written from the point of view of a child I think it was yeah okay I think it was Tim too I read that part and I agree I agree I think it was probably written entirely from Tim's point of view and I think he was smart in the parts that he kept from Tim's point of view yeah because he kept the the lab tour so he was able to portray all of that science stuff that's like you know deep stuff in a way that a normal reader could comprehend Mm -hmm. because it was through the filter of a child or an 11 year old I'm not sure if I would call an 11 year old really a child or you know prepubescent adolescent you know I think maybe (laughs) tween tween they're in that sort of hazy realm where they're not quite a teenager but they're sort of more than a kid I liked the switch of the ages, yes. making the girl older be- and giving and splitting up the character a little bit. They gave her kind of the computer skills, which I thought was one of the weaker parts in both the book mm-hmm. and the movie. Having a kid being able to figure all that stuff out. Joe, hate my husband, hates that section in the movie where it's a Unix system and she's going through. I the know like, this. Oh. <laughs> it's you know, right. Hates it. The part that always drove me nuts in the movie was that they're the two adults are holding the door shut, desperately trying to get to the gun while the girl is trying to figure out the syst- the computer system. And no one in the room thinks to maybe ask the able-bodied younger child to just get the gun for them. <laughs> seriously there's probably some like rating thing where you can't have like a kid pick up that giant ass gun but I like he should have been able to nudge it kick I mean this kid has survived dinosaurs at this point like I just I am with you I had the same note I'm like survived an electrified fence what is Tim doing in this scene Tim is just chilling although okay in the book whenever 
Tim, because Tim's the computer one, Tim's whatever, at, like mm-hmm. in the book, Lex is like, you can't do this. You're stupid. You don't know, blah, blah, blah. And their sibling dynamic in the book yes. was really annoying. And she did not mm-hmm. seem believable at all. She was always mm-hmm. awful. She was just awful, mm-hmm. awful character in the movie by aging her up. And like her mm-hmm. thing was like, she doesn't like dinosaurs. That's fine. No, not everybody does. But is that a mediasaurus or a veggiesaurus? I loved it so much. Like that was cute, you know? And their rivalry kind of back and forth was more like, I'll race you to the top of the fence. Not like you're a right. shitty person who, you know, is incompetent at life. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. I felt that they had a much more believable older sibling, younger sibling dynamic in the movie. And you have a younger brother, don't you? I do. And you have younger siblings also. Yes. And I just felt the way she responded to Tim getting hurt or being in danger was very realistic. There's that, especially like the kitchen scene, there's that um, when you're in danger but your younger sibling is in danger, it sort of kicks you up a notch in terms of um, being able to think clearly because it's not about you, it's about protecting the little one. And I thought that was well done. I am a little unclear on how the raptor got out of the freezer once it was shut in the freezer because we know there are only three raptors in the movie compared to I think the eight in the book. Which I liked that that little line um, about them asking how many there are, and Muldoon's like, "Well, there were eight, but then one killed all but two of the others." So, and I was like, "Okay, they did that so that they wouldn't have eight raptors that they had to track through the movie because that's too many raptors." So there's only three of them, and then at the very end scene, they're they're cornered in by all three raptors when the t-rex shows up to save them, but one of them should be trapped in that freezer. Okay, yeah, I think. <laughs> Were they were there three or two that were flanking them? Because Ellie locked one of them into the shed and she says we're safe as long as they can't figure out how to open doors. And then we literally see it opening doors. I think the one in the freezer was still in the freezer because that was okay. that was like locked from the outside. But I think the one she like mentally thought, oh, we've taken care of that one. Right. But I don't know why that one was like, I have escaped. Now I'm gonna go over here to this visitor center. Oh, hey, look, friends. Like, I don't know. Like it was sometimes the raptors and again i said it in my recap it was like waiting it's like ooh, what's the right moment should i get her before she turns the fences up right. no 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 i'll wait until she's done, done her job done, right it, that joe pointed that out too when when we watched through the movie he's like why is the raptor behind the machinery why is it popping out from behind the wires why did it wait so long also where's where's the rest of Arnold, right? right? So she like runs away when it, when it finally comes after, he's like, ha ha And she's like, oh my God. And she backs up and she goes into a room and shuts the door and feels an arm. And she goes, oh, thank goodness. And then the arm is like just mm-hmm. the arm. And you're like, but wait, where, how did you not trip over that body? Right. I don't, I'm very confused. Right. Like, I just, I don't want a diagram. Let's be honest. Like there was enough weird visuals mm-hmm. in the book that I, okay. But I just, I was like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah. I did not like that they killed off Muldoon in the movie. I think 13 year old, newly 13 year old me was more angry about that than most things. (laughs) Honestly, because it was so unfair. Um, And I think that, that goes back to Crichton was very careful in the book that the deaths seemed fair, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Woo 
his big like problem, right? His, that his Achilles heel that he just couldn't see was that he was brash. He would just slap in DNA from this or that and, and sort of use it to sculpt exactly what he wanted without any thought to the consequences. Um, and he didn't even know anything about dinosaurs. Exactly. So this like, totally goes into that whole like playing with things you exactly. don't know. But that's the way he died too, was being brash because he was running to to get Ellie back inside. So he opened the door quickly and called for her and then got grabbed. So he was uncautious. Mm-hmm. He, and, and that was what got him killed. And the same kind of for Arnold. He was so focused on the next thing to do and his own little world. And he was so confident that everything would work and the security measures were good. He is the king of everything's fine now. Oh, fuck. <laughs> right? <laughs> that, I, I think he said it like five times. He's like, oh, everything's fine. Wait, hold on one sec. <laughs> He had some of the most breathtaking lines in the book. Like, we have unbelievable, in italicized, right, unbelievable security measures. (laughs) And and there is no way the system could fail. (laughs) Like, I mean, he actually had those lines where anyone in real life, if someone said that, would be like, right, so rechecking the system right now... (laughs) So his big crime, his sin is hubris, right? Yes. Yeah. And most and of their gets- sins are hubris. And, and I, some of the changes, so, so Crichton wrote both the book and the screenplay. So, mm-hmm. and I think that's why, like, you at least touch on all the major themes in the movie. I think it was, it was actually a very good interpretation of the book for what they had the time available for and for what their target audience was because I would say the book's target audience is more adult sci-fi people you know people enjoy that genre the movie was obviously geared towards the teen audience like this is going to be a summer blockbuster this is not a niche reader group or viewer group so I think Crichton for what he had available did a good job at least including the themes. The problem was, and I put this note early, was it's like the movie skips stones across the book. So you're, it never delves deep into any of the themes that the book gets into. It's just like, okay, now we're going to touch on chaos theory. Now we're going to touch on the, on the genetics engineering you know, thing. Now we're going to touch on this and touch on that. And, and, and it just sort of jumps across the book where the book digs deeper into some of these things like I would say the overarching main theme of the book is actually chaos theory which was touched on only slightly in the movie like it was there you got an an explanation for it a sleazy explanation for it a sleazy explanation (laughs) that was distracted by the flirting also nobody was really paying attention because there's dinosaurs over there like it was technically it felt like like more service to okay we got to make sure we include this some of malcolm's lines were like that too i like what you said about skipping the stones it's like he had this really good line in the book let's put it in the movie we're gonna like forget all the context that makes the line Mm -hmm. actually make sense Mm -hmm. and but the line's still here and yes so like okay so the themes the themes from the book we have 
technology isn't exactly what it's all cracked up to be. You know, so we have like the idea of the computers, it's amazing computer system, but it's going to fail. Of course, this book came out right before like Y2K. Right. So we had like those fears of like, is technology really going to save us or is Mm -hmm. it going to like screw us all over in a major way? And like Mm -hmm. a lot of fears about the internet as the internet was like really ramping up. But the other main theme was like, don't screw around with nature Mm -hmm. because, you know, okay. And Malcolm is the conscious like his is is Hammond's conscious who's like saying hey don't do this mm-hmm. we have like the theme of life finding a way we have the theme of humans being the blight mm-hmm. which was made much more clear in the book mm-hmm. it was hardly touched on in the movie the theme that science can be dangerous which was in both of them but in the book we have the second part of that science yeah. can be dangerous is it actually helping anybody is it making anybody's life right. better and malcolm goes on this thing he's like now we have 17 different ways to clean our house but do we actually have more time you know and exactly. it's like an oversimplification but his point i mean let's be clear i love tech here we are in the future i love technology, <laughs> technology here yes. we are we're on zoom we're mm-hmm. doing a podcast like the future is great i have vision because of the future mm-hmm. but there's something to be said for having technology like it does it is it what purpose is it serving is it serving to make our lives better or is it serving like just to be there and malcolm's point about standing on the the shoulders of other people mm-hmm you know, kind of goes along with that. He has this great thing. And in the book, he explains, he says like, look, a a judo master, someone who's a black belt doesn't go off half cocked and kill his wife because Mm -hmm. by the time you get to that level, you have discipline, you have respect for what the, you know, the process and you've like gotten, you've matured, right? Cause it's taken so much time. You have appreciation for all the things yeah. that go into it. It's the guy who can't control his temper who kills his wife. Like that's yeah. the difference, right? But you have these scientists, these genetically engineering scientists specifically who are like, we didn't pay the dues in such a way we're just building on other things. And so we don't have the appreciation. We don't have the discipline. It's just more like, it's a thought experiment that we get to do. So let's, let's fucking do it. Like it's all exciting and without like really giving it mm-hmm. any thought. And I thought that was really made clear in the book and it, it was only touched and on. And in, in the movie, you get Malcolm pounding on the table. Yeah. You don't have discipline. You don't, and so, so you just package it and you, and you sell it and you bang, 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 you know, on the table and, and, and everyone's tuned out. Right. And it undermines the entire point because there's no context and it's just more Malcolm ranting. Okay. I have to say in the book, I loved Malcolm's yeah. rants, right? They were I loved them. awesome. They were great. I also, you know, but the, it's more than just Malcolm. It's every time someone points something out, they go into detail. Like mm-hmm. the scene, you know, you, I think you mentioned it, Ellie mentioning you have poisonous plants in the lobby and everyone <laughs> just ignoring that, right? <laughs> well, in the book, you get that bit from her perspective. So it's one of the few th- bits you get from Ellie's perspective. And they're walking through the pool area and these ferns they have that they clearly chose because they date from an ancient period, right, um, are highly toxic. Like, I think she said you can brush up against them and it will cause, you know, irritation and, and stuff. But if a child were to ingest it, they would probably die. And this is in the pool region and to me that was an it wasn't explicitly stated but it was an example of the one of the main problems that the park had which was Hammond wanted complete control he was like the hub 
And he would only give people exactly what information he felt they needed to get the job done. He would not give anyone the full picture of what they were doing at the park. So Nedry had to create a computer system to, run, to manage a zoo slash amusement park without any information that it was actually dinosaurs. He kind of got there himself by inferring stuff, but no one ever bothered to tell the person that was creating the safeguards for the park that they were dealing with dinos, right? But I think the plants is another example. I have a high suspicion Hammond said, I want prehistoric plants. So, he, so the botanist gave him prehistoric plants. And then people that had no idea what the plants did were in charge of planting the plants. <laughs> so, right? Because if they told the botanist what they were doing at the park, that would be one more person that could sabotage them, that could engage in corporate espionage, which clearly they had a reason to be concerned about, <laughs> given Nedry's situation. But I have a lot to say about Nedry, too. But yeah. that, to me, is one just one of those examples of, in the book, that he peppers all through, is their, their hubris and their lack of real knowledge. Like, mm -hmm. they don't even know the dinosaurs' physiology. At one point, they were trying to take out the, gla the poison glands on the Dilophosaurus, and they tried and failed and couldn't go anywhere because Hammond wouldn't let them kill one. And Joe was like, um, wouldn't that be the first thing you would do would be to create one, kill it, and then autopsy, autopsy it in detail because you need to know what's going on. So the vets are flying blind and it's all about finances and, and control. And Hammond was obsessed with control, which is one of the major themes of the book is that illusion of control. And that's the other good moment that Ellie has in the book too, is that she figures out why the dinosaur is sick. In the movie, it's like, oh, it's sick. And then we never really circle back to it. Mm -hmm. But she's like, okay, it's sick because it's ingesting this. I can't find it in its poop. Therefore, is there something else? And she's like, oh, it's because it's on these rocks and then it eats the rocks. It helps with digestion. Mm -hmm. So like she puts it all together and she's like, look, this is pretty obvious if you had ever stopped to ask anybody who knows anything about dinosaurs. This poor park warden guy and the vet are like, I don't know. I know about elephants, you know, he's mm -hmm. like, kind of like an elephant, right? It's really big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, uh, no, no, not at all. Yeah. I can just imagine how frustrating it would have been to be one of Hammond's employees, because on the one hand, you're doing probably the coolest work that anyone on the planet is doing in your industry at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. I'd like all of them. That's amazing. Um, but on the other hand, you're given none of the tools necessary to do your job correctly. The vet, Harden couldn't do his job correctly. Arnold couldn't do his job. Nedry couldn't do his job. Hammond wouldn't even let Wu make the modifications to the dinosaurs. Yeah, okay, so make. let's talk about that because that's super interesting. So Wu's like, look, we're making dinosaurs. That's really cool. Uh, do we have to make the dangerous ones? I'm just curious. <laughs> and if we do make the dangerous ones, can we make them less dangerous? Like we're already manipulated. Can we make yes. them be not meat eaters? Can we make them with like different kind of teeth? Mm -hmm. Can we make them little and cuddly? I mean, like if you want to make money, let's make pets but let's make them mm -hmm. safe pets right and Hammond's like no 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 they have to be pure dinosaurs and it was like dude they're not all they're not pure like I had to right. use other DNA and Hammond's like no but this is pure and they're like talking back and forth at each other mm -hmm. and so 
another thing I'm talking about themes about technology and stuff is that movie definitely had more of the theme about technology, not just science. Right. Right. And we have a lot of that is like technology is cool, but you can't count on it. And it's like little things all the way through. It almost contradicts itself because we have at the beginning, like one of our first pieces of technology we see besides them moving the Raptor, which doesn't end well Mm -hmm. is a grant with a computer system. Right. And the computer system is going to like do the seismic under the ground thing. And that is super common nowadays. They use that in archeology. span They use that in paleontology. They use it so that they don't have to disrupt the site because if you actually dig into a site you destroy the site so mm-hmm. it's a good thing but yes it gets away from the digging so grant is a little like he doesn't really like it he doesn't trust this technology blah 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 blah. and on the one hand he's right to not trust technology at the end it's not technology that saves anybody it's all the guys with guns right. die it's basically nature saves them or they save themselves by being macho you know running and smarting and out thinking these little tiny brain dinosaurs, right? But on the other hand, we have technology that fails and the lesson is just don't even count on technology because they're trying to get their seatbelts on in the helicopter. Their seatbelts don't work, you know? Uh, he, he almost falls out of a freaking helicopter. I, I actually like that scene. This is that because it's one of those scenes where you can pull out the English major analytical stuff. Because I looked at him like, Joe, look the seatbelts are both female (laughs) and then he tied them together to make it work. (laughs) Do you see what they did there? Do you see the foreshadowing (laughs) in the theme, but they did it with humor. And and I think Spielberg's really good about that. Tying in the humor elements in to soften the movie a little bit and to get information in in a way that's more palatable even with they're all sitting and they're gonna like go on this tour and they're gonna have this information (laughs) fed to them and they're like no i don't want to sit here and the three of them work together (laughs) to push the safety bar and get up and leave the thing and it's totally like life finds a way people are unpredictable They're going to get out of their cars and wander off because that's what people are going to do. Remind me to put locking mechanisms in the vehicle. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, again, we have our hero is a Luddite. You know, the guy with the gun and the guy with the computers, they die. Arnold dies. Nedry dies. It's the math nerd and the science guy that live. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so it is brains over bronze, but it's also the right kind of brains. It's not technology brains. It's non-technology brains. So anyways, and like we have 151 glitches on the list at the beginning. It's just baked in that technology is not what we expect or want it to be right also right. apparently 11 year old can hack into your computer system so your your, your multi-million dollar computer yeah. system i like that malcolm actually has a term for that he calls it thin intelligence yeah and, and it happens when people are so focused on on their narrow area of expertise and they and he said they even call it being focused you know and and it applies to, and he uses it applies to Wu applies to Arnold both of whom die right mm-hmm. um, but his but his main point is that they're not considering the consequences they're not considering the big picture they're just obsessed with whether they can not whether they should right that's a big that that phrase it has I see it all over the internet now it's one of those it's it's so pop culture you're so obsessed with whether you could you didn't stop to consider whether you should. Yeah. Well, and I mean, sometimes that's valid, 
I don't yes. need candy corn that tastes like turkey. I don't right. need Oreos that taste like lemonade. Like sometimes just leave things alone. alone. <laughs> Thank you. So getting out of the car, um, this, this was one of the few things that actually still confused me in the book because the book makes a really big point about having redundant systems for everything. And for all of the dino enclosures, they're supposed to have both a 12 foot electrified fence, which if you do your math, that's half the height of the adult T-Rex. So I'm not sure why they thought 12 feet was sufficient. Apparently they can't climb, knock it over or jump. That's that's the thinking. I'm right, guessing. but that I think points Go, is one of the big in th the raptors were not nearly as well enclosed as they should be either or they were in the movie right yeah. they were just like a double chain link electrified fence thing and i'm like okay so so they're consistently underestimating these dinosaurs basically mm -hmm. um but the but they're also supposed to have a deep moat so Arnold told them, you know, everything in the park has redundancies. Right. So all of the enclosures have both this deep moat around them and the, this high fence around them. And I'm like, okay, so getting out of the car and just walking to the Triceratops in the movie or the Stegosaur in the book um, probably wouldn't have been that simple, right? It should have been at least separated by the fence, one would think. And the T-Rex getting out, I kept thinking, what happened to the ditch? Where's the moat? There's <laughs> supposed to be a giant moat there. Well, and there was also in the book, there was a river, right? That was not was. In, in, in the movie. The fun part of, about the book that were left out were this whole adventure of Grant and the kids taking the river to get back. One of my favorite parts in the book is them going down to the lake to get into the boat to go into the river, right? Because they run across the sleeping T-Rex. And that scene in the book, like, I, I kind of wish it were done from the perspective of the T-Rex. <laughs> Because I can so, f I, 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 like, you, you know what that T-Rex did. Because earlier in the book, they were talking about the T-Rex is separated on one side of the lagoon, but it can see the sauropod paddock across the way. And it is obsessed with getting to those duck-billed hadrosaurs on the other side. I think, I hope I'm saying it right. And it's like, it's entire life, it's like, I want to eat those, I want to eat those, I want to eat those. And finally, the fences are down, and the first thing it does is go and eat one of them and then it has such a massive food coma that it just passes out under this tree it's sitting under a tree passed out and snoring <laughs> surrounded by flies and it is the funniest scene to me this t-rex that has just gorged itself for the first time in its life and is completely at peace <laughs> with the world and then it gets terrifying because the t-rex wakes up and turns out that fucker can swim yeah and so it's like being chased by a giant crocodile across the lake and then and the only reason it's they, they even survived that encounter was because the little rex showed up which by the way missed opportunity for the movie i feel like they should have included the little t-rex because it was simultaneously just as terrifying as the adult t-rex and also sort of adorable in its yes. behavior <laughs> Definitely like poking its head through the things in the river, yes. like trying to get, but it's like, it can't fit. Oh my gosh. Yes. 
right? Wreck. And then you have the whole adventure of going down the river and going through the aviary, which one of the ones later in the franchise actually did have stuff with an aviary. So I think that, that there's a lot of the content in the book that they kind of pulled for other movies. Right. But yeah, no, I liked the aviary scene in the book because they mm-hmm. go in and they're like, oh, like, this is kind of cool. Look at them. They're, they're flying around the pterosaurs, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And then the pterosaurs who like go way up with their wings up mm-hmm. and then pull those wings down and then like missile, like straight down to get fish or people or yes. whatever else. And that is okay. As longtime listeners of the podcast know, I hate and fear and fear and hate birds of all kinds. And so the fact that we have freaking dinosaurs are gave us birds and birds are scary. And then these pterosaurs are are mm-hmm. bird dinosaurs, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the scariest parts for me. <laughs> so one of the scariest, this is, this. they really get into your phobias, don't they? Mm-hmm. Those phobias. <laughs> um, I remember being dive-bombed by the local crows in our neighborhood that were very territorial of their nest. And they would dive-bomb my dog in particular, but they got me one time, too. And it hurts. Yeah. Getting knocked. I mean, it hurts a lot. And that's a tiny little bird. I can imagine a giant dinosaur. I have had birds come down and try to grab at my hair, especially when I was more blonde. It, apparently, it, it makes good nesting material. It's like straw. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, bird. I got rescued by a homeless man in Santa Cruz once because this bird would not leave the top of my head alone. And like mm-hmm. this man had to come out and rescue me. It's birds are freaking evil. I hate them so much. So, mm-hmm. yes, this definitely fed into all of my bird laced fear phobia things my phobia that it really hit and I just this scene was the worst to me was when Nedry right before he dies right he gets stuck in the mud and he's trying to get his car out but he falls down the hill and he loses his glasses and there's this line in there like my glasses my glasses I can afford new glasses right But from my perspective, being without my glasses, my vision is bad enough that it is really scary to me not to know what's going on in my environment. Mm -hmm. And if I don't have my glasses, I can't know. It feels very vulnerable. So that scene, picturing that whole thing happening with him not being able to see very well, the entire time I was picturing it, him, you know, the dinosaur right in front of his face, but he doesn't really, you know, because he's kind of blind at the moment can't see very well even with him driving around there was stuff with the glasses they were fogging up he was trying to wipe them off and it was terrifying to me it it it, it actually made my like glasses phobia even worse like I had to know for the next year or so where my glasses were at all times and I lost my glasses probably about a year ago I can't I don't know what happened but I misplaced them and I had a full-on panic attack oh my god like my husband was like calm down it's okay and I'm like I can't find them I can't find them I can't find them I need to put my contacts in so I can find my glasses and he's like you know you could find them in the morning <laughs> it's, you can just go to bed now but I couldn't I couldn't let it lie I'm super with you my one of my biggest fears is losing my vision and it's it's happening right and so yeah not having my glasses my they get broken they get damaged it's a big yeah. freaking deal and being blind I just had eye surgery I as pod listeners know, I had a, my ninth eye surgery a couple months ago and I couldn't see anything for a couple weeks and it's just awful. Like, and I kind of know my way around my house, but not officially like it, you know, you still bump into shit. I am with you. I don't remember that line in the book. I remember it being in the movie and having... it was in the movie. It was, yeah, okay. uh, I was, referring I to was like yeah. in the movie, it totally took me out. And I was like, what do you mean you can buy new glasses? You can't even drive. Like, where are you going to go? Like, 
that is written by someone who does not wear glasses or I don't know. I mean, I guess some people only use their glasses for half of mm-hmm. their vision, like either near or far or whatever. And he's like, I guess I won't need to read at all for the next however long, or mm-hmm. I guess I won't need to see the distance for how, whatever. It was weird. In the book though, that's obviously not exactly what happened, but okay. I know you have thoughts on Nedry. I have a few thoughts too. First of all, I hate the shorthand of our bad guy is going to be short and fat and ugly and into food and messy and slob and greedy and blah, blah, blah. I feel like you don't need all those things. I I feel like it's a little bit of lazy writing and I don't like it. I just don't like it. So it, so now we have in both book and movie, we have this guy who's slobby, slobby. Yes, I'm going to say it. It's a word now. Slobby and fat and messy and all these things, right? Mm-hmm. And it just it just bugs. But then in the movie, they decided to up the ante and have him be like, here's stupid dinosaur. You want a stick? Want a stick? I'm going to throw right. it. I'm going to throw it. And you're like, right. somebody needs to eat him. Yeah. So you don't feel bad at all. I think the but- dinosaur felt that way too. The Dilophosaur is like, well, I wasn't hungry, but now I am. Although- <laughs> There's two, because there's the one he's like, have a stick, have a stick, and he's stupid dinosaur, I'm going to run you over when I come down the hill. And then that one like spits at him, you know, because it's like, well, screw you, man. So then he gets into his car and the other one has also gotten, the other one got in his car, nicely moved over into the passenger seat so that he could also get back in his car and then waited and like just chilled there in the past. That is a very confusing scene. And I watched it carefully the second time because I wanted, because I watched the movie twice. I watched it for this podcast. I watched the movie, then read the book, then watched the movie again because I kind of wanted the movie to bookend the book. Um, So the second time I watched it, I'm like, I'm going to see where the hell that dinosaur is in the car. And honestly, I can't tell if it just came through the window or if it's fully in the car. It's kind of confusing. open window? Like, yes, see, or if open. it broke. Th- see, well, and that's the thing. I'm like, was the window open? Did he break into the window? What happened? But it sort of looks like it's leaning through and it's got that big fan around its head that makes it really hard to see past it. So I'm like, how did it get there? But that's not in the book. That no. was a change. And I have a feeling that was an editorial decision. In the book, he dies so much more graphically because he gets and blinded, it's, right? It's Which the is the first graphic death you see in the book. It's not only the first graphic death, it is the first graphic death on page 219. Like yes. this book has a slow, it's halfway. I'm it's a it slow burn. I don't think they even get to the island until page 80 something. I mean, we have the children being attacked early on, but nobody died except for the baby. But we're not like involved with the, the, the baby in the cradle being right. eaten alive. Like, but we know that it's there. Like the tone has been set for sure. Let's let's circle back to that because I yeah. definitely want to talk about that. But we're st- but focusing on Nedry for a second. He's blinded. Then he gets yes. like sliced. Then he realizes his intestines are intestines in his are hand. And and then he's being eaten alive and he and he has that thought please let it be fast yeah. in the book like i hope it's fast or something yeah. like that something about hoping it's fast and then when muldoon and them find him i think it's pretty obvious it wasn't fast yeah <laughs> from the way they're talking about it like it was pretty clear and the that bit i think they got into kind of they got into the movie with the because there's the bit in the movie very early where there's that random fat kid at grant's dig site and grant has that that, that the whole raptor thing description of how the raptor's gonna kill you 
Well, that's pretty much exactly how the Dilophosaur killed Nedry. That whole spilling his intestines, eating him while he's still alive. It's gross. It's awful. Um, He gets blinded in the process with the venom. Which is terrifying. um, Which if he'd gone on the tour, he would have known. So this is another one of those ignorance, right, is a bad thing. The more you know, the more you can react in a Really, if he had just like not taken a wrong turn on the road he would have made it to the 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 dock so his main sin here is not stopping and asking for directions (laughs) that's that's fair the storm also plays i think a bigger role in the movie than it did in the book in the film they used the storm as a way to kind of get everyone off the island that they didn't want in the movie anymore like which in book they just didn't have that many people he was like there's only 20 people here at the beginning because i'm so paranoid blah 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 we have like workers but it's all the spanish workers coming from costa rica right those guys at the beginning that we see with the raptor cages those are not a bunch of spanish workers right right okay i i wish that i was maria maria is in the book hammond's personal maid and she like serves him in his bungalow and Uh stuff you see maria like for very very brief amount of time right she basically brings him his ginger ice cream and leaves i want to be maria maria who got to sit in hammond's bungalow the entire time all this shit is going down on the island and like be fine but maria (laughs) probably still hiding in that bungalow got freaking nuked by the Costa Rican military. So I would say, hope that they got all the workers off in the book too. I pretty they didn't. It did not sound like it. They're like, here we are in our two helicopters and we're about to like destroy the island. And then they like list who's in charge, who's in charge, who's in charge is walking around and nobody right. wants to be in charge. Not me. Not me. Not, not me. me. Not me. Yeah, I know. Maria died. Yeah. The ending was way more um optimistic in the movie than the book it's like okay we survived and this is over thank yeah, god it's, okay it's weirdly optimistic because it's like okay it's just sad that it didn't it, like, like i can't do my thing and we're all in a helicopter and we're okay and there's very little falling action which is very horror movie cliche right like you don't really have a lot right. of falling action after you know we we drive away from the house or we you know escape or whatever mm-hmm. and one of the last shots is the bird pterosaurs i guess flying and so like there's this element of like oh well where are they flying to can they fly far enough away but because nobody goes oh my fucking christ look out the window oh my god they're migrating like they're you're not afraid you're just like oh how pretty oh it's so sad that it's not gonna work out but it's not done and then you know that they were like okay this movie's gonna do well we're gonna like leave us an opening for for future movies the book is not just like pessimistic in that the island gets destroyed completely but also like Mm -hmm. they're basically prisoners in the hotel they're like yeah no we're not letting Mm -hmm. you leave the kids might be able to get released back to their parents might be able to might a month later could you imagine as a parent that situation like your children were almost eaten by dinosaurs who because your father or soon to be (laughs) ex-father-in-law um decided to bring them as props Because yes, the book actually lays that out. The only reason those kids were there was because Hammond wanted their ooh-ah reaction to impress Gennaro and into letting him keep the park open. I mean, what an absolute asshole. For sure. sure. (laughs) Yeah, okay, so they can't go anywhere. Like, there's there's obviously, and like, 
somebody's gotten off the island. We know that. Like they're out there. Like it's it is super pessimistic. That is the biggest difference in theme, I think, between the book and the movie. Because the book, most of the tension comes from this knowledge that the dinosaurs are going to get off the island right because they already have but but in particular mm-hmm. there are some juvenile raptors that lex sees on the ship and poor lex in the book like we you know you can rag on that yeah. child but that <laughs> child was right about everything like every single and and at one point in the book she has the line why doesn't anyone ever listen to me and i like I get you, Lex. Welcome to the world of being a female in in today's world. No one ever listens to you. And it is even worse when you're a child. But she had, you know, I think at one point they point out they like the amazing senses that children have because she could see these raptors all the way on the ship. She could smell things before they hit the, the rest of them. And smell was a big part of the book. And like, that's usually how you knew the dinosaurs were around if they weren't making noise was you could smell the way their stench, particularly the carnivores. And then she could feel the vibrations before the adults felt the vibrations, all that, that stuff. But yes, so a big part of that tension for Grant and the kids wasn't just getting out of the park. It was getting back in time to notify the ship that it needed to turn around. And talk about Gennaro's moment to shine, right? When he got finally got on the phone with the ship and was like, <laughs> just pulled out some random maritime code that didn't mean anything and was like, you're going to be in violation of blah, 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 and find up to something for every day that your hour that you turn around or something like that. And then they were like, Okay, got it. We're coming back. <laughs> they are like literally within spitting distance of the dock. They get this thing. Turn around, come back. Okay, fine. I guess we're going to turn around. I hope we have enough fuel. Fine, right. whatever. So we turn around. Do, 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 do. We're heading back. Meantime, the helicopters are like, okay, let's pick you up. Did the boat? Where was the boat? Did the, the boat, boat get there? Was the boat on its way back? And good. Holy shit, that's a mushroom cloud. Like, what the hell? <laughs> Did they, did they, they did, they, I think the book did say that they were able to make better communication with the boat and that they were able to find and kill the raptors that were on it. But no, the visual is hilarious. But that part, the whole, the concern of raptors getting off and that was why they were counting the eggs and all this stuff. And then to me, part of that, like the, just the cherry on top of the whole chaos theory that is the book, right, is the fact that they get basically kidnapped by the Costa Rican government who is not at all interested in hearing the information right. about how many raptors and there were and that they needed to count them and stuff. Like, they just wanted this to go away. So, yes, you have some kind of migratory dinosaur on the mainland, whether it's just compies or whether it's also velociraptors or something else. We don't know. But they are on the mainland and they are migrating somewhere because they're birds. Which, by the way, did you catch Wait. in the book that dinosaurs are like birds, Kalia? Dinosaurs are like birds? Wait, like birds, birds? Oh my like God. Like birds, birds. Like they move, they move like their birds. Their tracks are left like birds. And their pelvis bone is kind of like, like birds. And they're big hooting, whistling sounds. Like yes. Birds. And oh, their, oh my bone, God. their bones are hollow. They're like, like birds. something in it's- the modern day. <laughs> Dinosaurs are very similar to some creature that we have now. 
similar oh, no. similar is, is it, it reptiles is it, cats? Is it amphibians no. is it birds mm. it might be birds maybe maybe Michael Crichton, um, wonderful writer that he is, managed to do a little much foreshadowing on the bird thing to the point where it was not a surprise in any way, shape or form that these things are birds. <laughs> Interestingly enough, and I, I'm excited to talk during the supplemental episode with some paleontologists about this, but at the time this book was written, that was a relatively new idea. It wasn't super in vogue, I don't think. Um, there was mm-hmm. still like this idea that the dinosaurs were big lizard, small brained, slow plotting dumb creatures. So it was revolutionary at the time. At this point, almost all the dinosaur books my eight-year-old has is like, dinosaurs are a lot like birds, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. which I have a funny chicken nugget story to tell you at some point about that. But whatever. Anyways, so, but this was like a thing at the time. And so I kind of understand he was like, bonk, 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 bonk you on the head with it because it really had, it, it hadn't permeated into the culture yet, but yeah, it was a little excessive. So I think that's a really good segue into talking about the writing. Yeah, I think I, I might have loaned you my copy of Jurassic Park back in the day where um, I know I loaned it to a few of my friends and every single one of them gave it back to me saying, um, thank you, I really enjoyed the book right up until the last few chapters where you underlined in red every single time Michael Crichton used the word said. And I understand from a writing perspective, you're encouraged to just use said most of the time. But this man, I mean, it was like Grant said, Ellie said, Gennaro said, Grant said again. And it, and like, and we're talking like one or two words and it got a lot. It was just a lot. <laughs> and I think Crichton, Crichton was an interesting writer. Let me just say that part of me kind of wishes that I had his freedom to write this way. And part of me is like, I don't want his five failed marriages. <laughs> that Because the way he wrote was to gather like all of his research and then kind of just hole up and do nothing for, for about six weeks other than write. He would get up increasingly early, sleep for like four hours a day and just right and and it worked very effectively for him um but i think it did have a few downsides and could have used a bit of editing in certain areas of his writing because a lot of it does come off as just too in the moment like too too stream of consciousness or too rushed i feel like like you're saying at the end of the book i what i felt like was that his editor gave up halfway through and was like, <laughs> yes. I trust you, Michael, you know what you're doing because an editor should have been able to say, dude, we need another word besides said the thing that stuck mm-hmm. out for me was, was not only that, cause you'd already mentioned that to me years ago. So I was on alert, mm-hmm. but also he starts a lot of um, paragraphs with the word, then, then mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Then blah 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 blah, blah, blah. and I was like, oh my god, there's a lot of thens. Mm -hmm. The other thing, Mm -hmm. and this is tiny, but oh my god, it should have gotten caught. Lex is Lex the entire book, except for once when she is Alexis. Alexis, yes. What the hell, man? That that stood out to me too. I was like, who the hell is Alexis? Like, it took me a second to real because they somebody says Alexis, like, and I was like, Mm -hmm. who are they? Like, why? And it just it does not make any sense. It totally takes me out. I watch a lot of Shit's Creek, so I was not in the right place for that. (laughs) I'm just saying it was weird. So (laughs) that okay. Again, I watch a lot of Shit's Creek too, and that that's the same place my brain went. Also, actually, when I a little bit Alexis, right? Here's a you know, thirty years later, (laughs) different pop culture thing. (laughs) 
And, you know, there's a lot of lengthy scientific explanation in this. Yeah. Like early on, there's there's a big explanation of that machine that they use to kind of do the sonar mapping. Mm-hmm. He spends like a page and a half on it. And I'm sitting there like, why are they spending a page and a half on it? And then I was like, oh, I get it. It's because of the end part of it that's important. The bit about things work in the lab that not in the field. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, this is foreshadowing. This is getting the reader used to this concept that the bigger mechanical stuff is not going to work in practice. The other thing I think that why that that was there is in in a similar way, the book starts with this character. They have a couple, Mm -hmm. you know, pages and then we never see them again. Then we have another character who seems very important and then they go away. Then we have another character. And so I think that part of that is to get you used to like, nothing's permanent. You don't actually know who's going to make it and not make it. Who's important? Who's not important? Mm -hmm. Like who's our main character? And so that that kind of puts you on edge a little bit, like as a reader. It does. Anyone could die. And that's very effective, isn't it? Because- He does not have a main character whose perspective you follow through the entire book. Most of it is Grant and Timmy. Like, like, yes. kinda, like those are the ones we're pretty sure are going to live and make it because we do spend a lot of time in their heads and they're freaking Grant and Timmy. From a reader's perspective, not having a solid main character is tricky mm-hmm. <laughs> because you, you don't know who's gonna live right or, or you you don't have an assumption of who's gonna live so that does put you but it but it it has two effects because it does put you on edge but it can also distance you from the characters as a reader you can be like well I'm just not going to invest emotionally in any of these people part of what works for Michael Crichton is that his characters are all pretty basic blah yes they don't have a lot of depth do they so it's okay to not really get into them because yes. I, I feel like it's an intentional thing. And and I think, mm-hmm. and I mean, I, I, it's not just me, Michael Crichton's books are there to to teach us something and to have a conversation basically with himself yes. about these big concepts. The characters and the plot is just the vehicles to get, make that happen. So the characters mm-hmm. are not the point. And sometimes you read a book and nothing happens, but it's all character development Mm -hmm. or character thought some of those books really suck yes book club i'm looking at you and that book you made me read last year but sometimes it's it's the opposite where a lot of stuff happens and there's not any character growth or change and that's okay so but it is like a weird balance and it kind of depends on what you were coming for but i think for the purposes of this conversation is important too is that the adaptation in movies, we have to identify with somebody. Right. In novels, right. it's kind of more okay not you to. You don't have yeah. to. Yeah. And my personal take on the personalities is that Crichton deliberately wrote some characters to be obnoxious because part of what he's he's driving at in terms of human nature is that the more we like someone the more likely we are to trust them and to be nice to them and to work with them as a partner Mm -hmm. so the people the the two most obnoxious characters besides Hammond right everyone hated Hammond um was was Ian Malcolm and Nedry and you talked about how ne- how people like how you hated the portrayal of Nedry and I'm like yes but I think that was intentional and I think it was intentional to show the way people treat folks that look and behave like him mm-hmm. right because Hammond thought he was disgusting everyone like the word I would I would I would use for the for the way people respond to him in general is disgust 
And that's a strong emotion when it's triggered in you. And it's very hard to work with someone that you have disgust for or disdain for. And they really seem to have that for Nedry. He's fat. He's sloppy. He is gross. He's rude, right? The rudeness. He wouldn't shake people's hands, look people in the eye. He expected folks to pay for him. He would, I think at some point, Arnold or Wu was going into the other room for something and he just asked them to get him a soda or something and and it's like okay that's not something I think most people would do for to a co-worker I certainly never just asked a co-worker to get me something while they were up not even getting themselves something but doing in the ask. middle of a crisis in the middle of a crisis <laughs> right so but had they treated Nedry with respect and decency he probably would not have have engaged in corporate espionage because that was the in that Dodson's company had with him was that he was being terribly treated. So he was given information on how to do the system that turned out to be incorrect because they didn't give him the full picture. And then they refused to pay him and threatened to sue him and were smearing his reputation if he didn't do it for free. Yeah. So you have this disenfranchised but highly intelligent employee who was basically disenfranchised because people didn't respect him because of how he looked and behaved yeah and ian's similar malcolm ian malcolm's similar he is he just he's not wrong he's just an asshole about it (laughs) right he's just so arrogant in the way he presents stuff and the and the movie really played that up he was not nearly as like sexual sleazy in the book as he was in the movie his shirts were stayed buttoned in the book in the book exactly (laughs) he was just a rock star um yeah but the way he would phrase things made people that should have been on his side like arnold and woo hate him yeah. Because he was so confident. He was so confident in his equations. And he would just dismiss Wu and Arnold's, like, you know, their logic. He'd be like, no, nope, that's just not how it's going to go down. And then he insisted repeatedly on telling people every time he was right. I would like to point out that I predicted that fence integrity would fail. You're like, like shut up, man. That scene in the movie where Hammond just says to the camera, boy, do I hate that man. Yeah. <laughs> right? We all sympathize with that. But I think the the greater point that he's that Crichton was making with all of that is that people just because they come off as abrasive and obnoxious doesn't mean they're not an expert in their field Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't just dismiss them. You know, the like all of the women, I think at one point with like, so there was um, Dr. Roberta something at the very beginning. And she is described as wearing cut off jeans and, and shorts, tank top and a tank top and stuff. And she is just completely dismissed. And they're then like, where's Ellie, the doctor? She's like, I'm the doctor. And they're like, no, right. Oh, uh, OK. And uh, then Ellie comes along and Gennaro was surprised that she was a female. And she's she's got her like short shorts and her tanned yes. legs and her long yes. neck. And I wrote that in my notes. I said, oh, look, another female doctor person being uh, wearing jean cutoff shorts and getting dismissed by men. <laughs> like, it's just a thing, right? <laughs> but that's that's kind of throughout. There's also this subtle or not so subtle racism vibe going oh, yeah. on with the park management and other people in it. Like the openings, well, one of the early scenes in the book where the girl is attacked on the beach and her dad was some real estate mogul from Texas or something. And he just 
though it's told from his perspective and every time he interacts with someone who has a british accent or is white or something he's put at ease right he looks at it's like he's more comfortable with them Mm -hmm. than he is talking to the local costa rican doctors one person opened his mouth and oh it was a british accent there was a moment of like relief there like okay someone that knows what they're doing even though it's established early on that costa rica actually has a very excellent medical system right in place it's that that prejudice that you have coming coming in and there was a lot of that towards the workers on the island a lot of prejudice in how they were treated and i'm not at all surprised that one of them or two of them maybe all of them just left Hammond at the bottom of that ditch. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was like, he was pretty sure that, that they were walking around up there and could hear him. But yeah, that's what happens when you treat people that badly. There's a whole bit about how he tries to lead by by screaming. And it's from Arnold's perspective at the time. And Arnold's like, yeah, that might work for your secretary when you're asking for a latte, but it really doesn't work any, it's not effective at all on computer systems. Well, they don't care. But that's also like a gender thing. He's like, oh yeah, you can scream at women. That works with women, but we're logical men and you just yes. let us work because we are in passion, you know, da, 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 da. So mm-hmm. Hammond's rage, his frustration, his acting out is put into like these feminist, you know, like kind of a thing. Stop acting, yes. cry baby woman. And, you know, real men just will solve the next problem. No, I, I appreciate everything you're saying, especially about Michael Crichton making this point about how people are treated and treated differently versus- And, and then- And, and the- that kind of gets into a little bit like we were talking with Malcolm, right? So Malcolm, yes. he dies- in the book. He takes a really long time to do it. And it's fairly clear that he died too. I was reading it more carefully and it's mentioned twice because it mentioned that they weren't allowed to give Hammond or Malcolm a burial. Yeah. So it feels like he's definitely dead. He's totally dead. (laughs) Michael Crichton brought him back later because he was so popular. Okay, so fine. And I think he did everything possible to make the character unlikable because I don't think he wanted to bring the character back. But then Jeff Goldblum comes out of nowhere and makes this sleazeball likable somehow. (laughs) Well, I mean, and maybe that's because, like we said, skipping stones, we didn't get like all the rants. We just got a little bit of it. And we also got all the humor. We got Jeff Goldblum was the one saying that's a big old pile of shit when it's, you know, as tall as he is or drive faster, must drive faster. Like he, his, his delivery. So like, I have a line I wrote down in my notes. I was like, I guess it's okay to be a sleazeball as long as you're a funny sleazeball. Yep. And you look like Jeff Goldblum because let's be honest, if Nedry had been like, you know, drive faster, must drive out here. Ellie, right. take your hand and pour water. No. Oh God. Okay. And that most unrealistic scene in the movie, because what, <laughs> what female scientist of her age and supposed caliber and experience and relationship status would be cool with this guy just taking and petting her hand. And did you catch that little a little piece of hair he tucked behind her ear <gasps> i don't no, know any woman okay. that would have even back then that would have just let that go it's so highly and like at first i was like is she just playing him like is she just right? messing with him but then there was no payoff for that i don't it was so it was so weird there was I, a lot more sexualized stuff in the movie than in the book well 
Ellie and Grant being together. together. They're an item in the movie. In the book, they were just colleagues, and she was like his student. Vastly different ages. I think he was 40 and she was 24. And she was engaged to a doctor someplace. There was nothing going on. Which, by the way, Grant was a widower. I'm like, that's an interesting piece of information that was just dropped in at 40, but she died a long time ago. I want more information about that. Thanks. Maybe there'll be a prequel. Yeah, no, seriously. I liked it because I don't like that every time you got people of the opposite gender, because this is a heteronormative society that we live in, blah, 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 patriarchy sucks, blah, 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 queer people are real. But like a lot of times you put a guy and a girl together, oh, well, they're going to have to be romantical, blah, 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 which I hate. Mm -hmm. So I liked the fact that they weren't romantic in the yeah. book. Although Ellie had like very little to do. She gets taken out pretty, and then she's just nursing Malcolm, yeah. like giving him drugs and nodding along. And then she has her one shining moment of running and jumping in a pool, but okay. Uh, you know, so like the Ellie in the movie did have more to do, but then we also make her the sexualized romantical thing. Mm -hmm. Then we try to make it better by giving her that line when they're going to have to have somebody go out and do this dangerous thing. And Ham is like, uh, 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 maybe, maybe I should do it. Cause I'm a guy and you're a girl. And she's like, we'll talk about sexism when I come back. In survival scenarios when I return. Which was a great line. It was. It's just disappointing that it was her that said it. <laughs> right. And they sort of do that to, to grant also they they kind of make these boxes for them to fit into ellie fits in the movie so ellie fits into that strong female lead slash love interest box grant it, it's almost as bad for him because we talked earlier about how he um does like children in the book but doesn't like them in the movie and i'm like okay and you were like he needs some character development because that's of course a thing but i find it really patronizing that the character development they chose to give this man was that now he wants a family yes yes it's incredibly patronizing like it's not okay for a dude to just be like kids are not my thing right and just leave it at that and in the book that he actually has this really sort of sweet interaction with tim the 11 year old version of tim um where tim asks him like are you and ellie is ellie your wife are you and he's like no we're not together he's like well are you gonna marry her no i'm not she's gonna marry so and so well are you going to get married you know probably not you know i was married and and you know she died a long time ago um so no i'm probably not gonna get married again and tim pauses and he goes yeah i don't think i am either but to me that's actually a very affirming interaction between an adult and a kid because how often do kids hear it's okay to just not get married mm -hmm. it's okay to be single and to just be a bachelor or, or the female equivalent of a bachelor right it's okay to do that mm -hmm. and I don't know I think there's a lot of 11 year old kids who would find that very reassuring that there's an adult out there that thinks the way I do about this and that's an okay life path to choose yeah but they changed that they, they like upended it so much in the movie that it actually became the opposite yeah the opposite message for children is that you if you are in a a heteronormative relationship which by the way you should be oh, yeah. because we're going to make sure that the character you like is you need to have children you need to want children and you need to have children and apparently getting flirted with by an 11 or 12 year old girl throughout the entire movie is what is going to do it to you to decide to have children 
creepy much. That was one of the creepiest things about the movie was how Lex spent the whole time sort of making these like, you know, puppy dog googly eyes at Grant and holding his hand. And I'm like, no, ew, that's gross. And why is Sattler encouraging that? That's not nice. I also think it's worth noting that the character who we're not supposed to like has multiple divorces. Yes. Right. And that's Ian Malcolm. Yes. He's like, oh yeah, I'm always on the I'm always on the outlook for the future Mrs. X Mrs. Malcolm. Which is funny, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. But also he has kids. Yeah. At one point, you know, he's like, I have kids, they're amazing, they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then that adds to his willing to like go out there and try to, you know, take care mm-hmm. of these kids, distract the dinosaur because the kids are important right. you know, and stuff like that. So they they humanize him in this weird way, which is they do. great. And it's just this one line. And then of course, like I said, they let him live, which is which is great. I'm so mm-hmm. glad that they just decided to let him live, although he does get, you know, injured and then he lounges about for <laughs> with his shirt open. With his shirt open. <laughs> But how funny were his rants in the book? Oh, the they rants, were and and at, so so the there he's lying on the bed in the other building. So there's there's the hotel, and then there's the lodge, right? right. And the party is split. D and D terms. The party has been split, and a whole, a whole some of them are in the control center. Some of them are in the hotel portion, and that's where Malcolm is with Ellie and the and Harding, the veterinarian. But they've got these skylights because, of course, they do, right? This, right. Because why wouldn't you put put an easy entrance into your hotel rooms that they had clearly put in these these sort of um, last minute cages, electrified metal cages around these pyramid skylights. And these raptors are on the ceiling while the electricity's out, literally chewing through the bars, these metal bars. They're actually chewing through the bars. And for some reason, don't ever think, maybe we should move to a different hotel room. (laughs) Not be in here. And we should definitely leave Malcolm on the bed bed, directly directly under under the skylight. Where glass is raining down on him. And I love the scene where Ellie just sort of picks up the big pieces off of him. Link, link. I guess just link. leaves the rest. Yeah, that was that was fun. So like I said, the novel is more of an intellectual experience. The film is more emotional, which is a direct quote from one of the things that I will put in our show notes. But since we've talked for almost two hours now... Uh, <laughs> Any big things that we've missed before I get ask you for your, your to sum up final thoughts? I think one of the few things I didn't mention was that there's a lot of stuff that the chronolo- chronology of how things happen in the book is really well thought out. And I have a feeling it's because Crichton would run up against something and be like, I want the characters to do X. And then he would think about it or ask the experts and be like, obviously that's stupid. So like, for example, in the book, he, they deliberately did not sleep in a tree. Yeah, because that would be dumb because they could just fall out of the tree and it's hard and it's uncomfortable. So they end up finding a maintenance shed and they find it in a really intelligent way and they're able to spend the night there in safety and all that. But that kind of stuff happens sort of consistently in the book where things make logical sense because the author has thought it through and knows that his readers would think it through Mm -hmm. and would question it if he just makes things happen the easy way. 
in the movie, you don't have to be as concerned about that because it's kind of like sleight of hand, a movie is. You have all these things, you know, the visuals and the music and the sense of urgency and and you can't pause it or, or stop reading it. You know, it's just, it just keeps going. Um, so your mind doesn't have the time to dwell on these little minutia details of like, that doesn't actually make sense. Like one of them, like how did they get into the tree in the sauropod pod paddock when they fell into the t-rex paddock and we don't see them crossing the fence between the t-rex paddock and the sauropod paddock yet in the middle of the night they're clearly with the sauropods who are you know chewing the branches around them mm -hmm. they're clearly not in the t-rex paddock so it's those kinds of things that that in the book everything makes logical progression sense but in the movie if you look at it too closely if you ignore the razzle dazzle effect uh, that Spielberg is so good at you realize there actually are these spots that sort of break down mm -hmm. differently and you kind of miss the main theme of chaos yeah. affecting chaos. everything yeah which is why we spend the first several chapters building up these characters that he never does anything with you know in these scenes because you're demonstrating the progression of chaos theory and how one person finds this so they send a message to this university to look into it but that guy's missing so it's looked at by a different person and then it just happens to be found by an aide who decides after being dismissed by the doctor, probably because of sexism, she's going to x-ray it and send it to Dr. Grant for a review. You know, so you have these, these missing connections that I think are important to the book because they demonstrate how the domino effect and how a little action here can cause a big explosion over here mm -hmm. eventually. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really what you miss in the movie compared to the book. Yeah. And I mean, that's just one of those things. In novels, you have so much more time. So much more time. And you can get way yeah. more into the details. And this book definitely enjoys getting into the details. Getting into the details. <laughs> Very much so. So, Leah, was this book, was this movie, were they worth your time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were. They were. The movie, I think, is worth everyone's time, mostly as a pop culture reference mm -hmm. like you'll get things if, you, if you've never seen it you'll suddenly see things from the movie popping up all over the place it's one of those cultural reference points that's that's worth it for that if nothing else but then it's Spielberg who's the master of of special effects and drama you know that that's that first scene where they first see one of the, the brachiosaurus which I love that they called it a brachiosaurus in the movie because everyone knows what that is compared to the book where it's some completely different uh, yeah. animal in that, but it's clearly that type of large, yeah. long-necked dinosaur. A um, long neck from Land Before Time. Right. But that scene, that scene is amazing. You know, it's shot from an angle that really elongates how big the dinosaur is and the music building up. And it's just epic it's awesome to look at the acting you know they're falling all over themselves it's a dinosaur oh my god it's a dinosaur it really is it's a real dinosaur you know the son of a bitch he actually yeah. did it you know those those that moments and Spielberg was amazing at the drama so it is and I think actually the movie holds up today better than the book does from a modern perspective because a lot of the choices they made like having 
power fail because of the storm and because of Nedry, you know, interference, but the, but a large part of it was the storm um, interference too, makes sense. Whereas if you're reading the book, you have to constantly remind yourself this was 1990 technology. So st- you have to remind yourself stuff like they can't call out because the modems are tying up all right. the phone lines, right? It's dial up. Um, but if you're reading it today, it does require a bit of that like historical perspective, suspension of disbelief, putting yourself in a different time period, even though it's only been 30 years, it still requires putting yourself back in 1990 shoes. So if you're young and you grew up with the internet, you have to go into the book knowing that some of the tech might not make any sense to you. <laughs> Some of, some, of, some of the technological issues that they run into. But I still think the book is worth it, even though it's long-winded, even though you don't have a main character to root for, even though you have to deal with some funky writing style stuff. If you enjoyed the movie, I would watch the movie first. If you really enjoyed the movie, go ahead and read the book. You're going to have um, a different experience and a more full experience if you want to really explore the themes of the movie. I wholeheartedly agree. I think the movie is great for what it is. It definitely is telling a slightly different story than the book. Spielberg is obviously a genius. It was really actually hard for me to take notes because I was enjoying watching it so much. Like the story that the movie is telling us is about hubris and technology and macho men and some things should stay in the past. And it does a really, really good job. It has this great line about they're not evil. They're they're not monsters. They're just animals and they're doing what they're doing. And that's their natural mm-hmm. thing. And I just really, really liked that. The book the writing style, there are things about it that bug me, but it does not bother me as much as it bothers other people. It is definitely telling a hard sci-fi story, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you, though. Like, you do have to put yourself in that time because it is dated because now we have CRISPR. And Dolly happened seven years after this book came out, you know? So, like, it would be a very different book if he was sitting down to write it today. And that's yes. kind of interesting. So yeah, the, the characters are there just more to move the plot along. We're not really rooting for anybody, but we're definitely rooting against people, which is nice because I think if you didn't have either of those things, then you would really not want to follow along. But because right. we do have these very obvious villains like Hammond and Nedry, um, that it's it's still totally enjoyable. It has room to get into the nitty gritty and it does it, like I said, with relish. It loves that. And <laughs> I personally really like that too. Me too. I liked the the outside threat more in the book that was there and it wasn't just like this snow globe kind of a thing. I liked Malcolm's. I I really liked them. I would say they're both totally worth your time. I will say one aspect of the book that the book has that I think the movie doesn't really do as much because the book is just so much longer is that there's always this push and pull in speculative fiction about sci-fi when 80% of this mythological world is actually reality and then the other 20% is the pretend stuff right it's all presented as real you know you're reading a sci-fi book it's about dinosaurs but nobody's like nobody flies on a broom or casts a magic spell so like Mm -hmm. it's sometimes hard to remember and I think that there is this element, this, this struggle that a lot of people have, there's a lot of people who don't like fiction because of this, is how much is real and how much is not. And if if you don't know what to trust, then that can lead you down some like really weird mind holes. See also our episode on the Da Vinci Code. So anyways, that being said, I really liked this book a lot. 
I don't think I had ever actually read it before. I know I'd read little pieces of it, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the movie. 10 out of 10 would highly recommend. So Leah, thank you so much again for being here. This was great. You're awesome and so much fun to talk to you. (laughs) Yay. Yeah, it's been fun. Dusting off the old English major analytical skills. I don't think I've ever looked so deeply at a work of popular fiction before. (laughs) (laughs) So again, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. How old were you when you saw this movie? Uh, Leah was uh, 13. Her brother was eight. My eight-year-old loves dinosaurs, but will not be watching this movie for several years because she is afraid of a lot of things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So This is not the dinosaur movie for dinosaur-loving kids, necessarily. No. Definitely not. Um, this is the dinosaur movie for monster-loving kids. There so you go. My kid, by the time she's eight, will probably be wanting to watch this, considering she she's been bugging me to watch the Nightmare Before Christmas for oh. the last several weeks. No, I, my kid is still much more in the uh, Dino Dana, Dino Dan, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. <laughs> Land Before Time. Did you know that there are fourteen Land Before Time movies? Oh, I do because we have them all, <laughs> and you watch them regularly. Oh, I'm and a sure. cycle. <laughs> You just start over again at the beginning. Anyways, um, we want to hear from you. Pages and popcorn podcast at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts. And um, once again, Leah, thank you so much. This was great. Yeah, wonderful. Yay. Yes, let's um, not do the lost world for the next one. <laughs> no. <laughs> because our response, because I have a feeling that it would be, our response would be much different. Because I, I would just say right now, read the book. Do not even bother with the movie because the book, the Lost World book is almost as good as the original, as the the first one. But the movie is trash. (laughs) 